0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to
1: the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. Here, as ever, with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric?
0: Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. morning. I see you're in Houston again.
1: Yes, I am. I am. How was your weekend? You had a long weekend, I believe. It was was good. My
0: wife was at a girls weekend. (gasps) Fun. So I had to fly to Minnesota to pick my son up from hockey camp, came back, and then... Nice. I didn't know what to do with myself because I... (laughs) I had to tell myself what to do. It was great. Mow <laughs> the grass, wash the car. It, it was great. Yeah. Got a lot done. How about you?
1: Uh, you know, I, I got a big trip coming up in a few weeks, and uh, so I got to get ready for Where that. Where are we going?
0: Cabo was our last trip. Where are we going now? In Tahiti,
1: Leeward Islands, Bora Bora.
0: Who authorized that? That sounds like a long it's, trip. It's a
1: bucket trip. It's a bucket list trip I'm taking with my family. So. Yeah.
0: Nice. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. I didn't get the invite on that one. Sorry. Who do we have today on the show?
1: Oh, this is going to be- Let's
0: get really back nice. to reality. Let's
1: get back to reality. Okay. We've got Tom Hoffman. He's a uh, senior vice president for intelligence at Flashpoint. Welcome, Tom.
2: Good morning. Uh, how are you all doing?
1: Very, Very well. Very well. I can't wait to jump into this. Yeah, the the pre-podcast recording conversation has me stoked. But first, I just... We wanna... should
0: have just recorded it.
1: I know, as always. But I want to prime the pump, Tom. I mean, you've got a really cool job. Could you just kind of like talk about what you do in the intelligence kind of realm with the dark web and and all of that awesomeness? Uh,
2: sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I... As you said, oversee our Intel operations here at Flashpoint. Uh, Flashpoint is a risk intelligence company. Uh, We provide technology that helps uh, firms across the globe, primarily the Fortune 500, really understand different threats uh, to their organization and it spans everything from what you would expect from cyber attacks, phishing emails, uh, nation state attacks, criminal activities, but then also uh, to really where cyber and physical come in. So we help a lot of executive protection teams as they're uh, trying to understand threats that emanate from the internet against their executives, uh, where they need to uh, beef up their protection. And, And we're really involved in a lot of these illicit communities where we can keep eyes and ears on activities that are ongoing and help really inform that conversation and help people better protect their employees and their assets.
1: And you're spending your days on the dark net, though. I mean, you're just how do you even log in? I I, I tried to do the tour browser one time, but I didn't know what to do once I got there.
2: <laughs> well,
0: you're most of the way there. Uh, yeah. Well, you're not, you're not a, uh, an adversary. <laughs> no,
1: not, not in the least. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's,
2: it's interesting. A couple of years ago, um, really the deep and dark web as people heard it, it was kind of this spooky thing, but it, is increasingly becoming more accessible to everyone across the globe. Uh, the technologies are getting better. Uh, as you said, uh, it's sometimes as easy as instor- installing a browser, and you can be up and running and connecting into these parts of the internet that are not indexed by Google or, right. or Yahoo, and you can start seeing uh, different things happening on the internet. And that's where we operate quite often. And as you can imagine, the anonymity that these uh, places afford uh allow some of the illicit activities to really fester. And that's where we operate many times.
0: Fun. That sounds exciting. So it's really like being in the red light district at two in the morning. I mean, you're, you're just, you're observing what's going on and you're, you're trying to understand the, the ever changing landscape of cyber activity, right?
2: Yeah, and I will tell you, it's uh, a, a lot of uh, garbage is what you're looking at quite often. Um, it are, It's uh, things that you'd rather not see and you can't unsee. Uh, but it is something where you, you really don't want, especially if you're a, a large company, it's not something you want your employees on. Uh, it's not something you want your security teams dealing with. This is something where uh, doing it in a safe manner where you can actually have protections because uh, a lot of people don't even think about it. What happens if you inadvertently click on a link and you come across some uh, child pornography that's being hosted on a, a website? Like that is a... a risk that really a lot of companies want to avoid and we have systems in place that can help block that keep it off of our systems scrub it before it ever gets to the eyes of some of our employees Uh, but it is just uh, some of these these uh aspects of of these environments unfortunately it's the cesspool of the internet quite often and what you come across is uh, not something you want to talk about at the kitchen dinner
0: it's it reminds incredible. me, yeah. 20 plus years ago, I worked with AOL pretty heavily, and the AOL mm-hmm. search team had to search AOL's infrastructure for illicit content, you know, bad content. And, and it was pretty traumatic to a lot of the searchers. It was very manual ah. back in those days. I mean, they automated many things, but you would come across child pornography. You would come across, you know, I don't think we'd be heading videos as popular back then, but but graphic things you never wanted to see. And it it took a toll on the employees, so I can only imagine.
2: Yeah, some of the uh, larger contracts we support with a lot of the technology companies, uh, they actually have uh, certain precautions built into our contracts, where on a monthly basis, we provide uh, different counseling, and different mindfulness coaches to help people deal with what they're coming across. Uh, So yeah, I think it is a a much, it's not a great place, but uh, the people who are really hands on day to day, there are additional resources there. And, and I've definitely seen that this it's had a great impact with our employees because it gives them that ability to talk this through of what they're dealing with on a daily basis and not have to take that home to their families.
0: It almost makes ransomware seem clean. Yeah. Ransomware is is a
2: big business. And even yes. when we're dealing with victims, we, we say, just remember, you're, you're in a business negotiation here. You're, you're yes. dealing with a, a very big, profitable business on the other end. And it, it you're right. In many respects, it helps. Uh, it, it's much cleaner.
0: Yeah. Much more costly, but much cleaner. Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
1: What I find interesting... interesting. Oh, sorry, Eric. I was just going to make a, a quick comment. Um, there was You were in an article, I think it was back in November, about the whole Groove project, Tom. And I just thought it, I found it really fascinating that, you know, the, there was this, it was a ramp, this like forum that was set up, but it's for all the people that were too toxic for the other ransomware gang cybercrime forum so now they had to kind of create their own faction and it's just interesting it's like are there moral codes going on with these ransomware games gangs and then it, it turns out Groove was just like a trolling exercise with media um i mean what's going on with these guys this is crazy
2: yeah it's the wilderness of mirrors it is the the ramp environment i think the it stands for ransom anonymous marketplace And it was specifically stood up because, as you said, uh, the the heat got a little bit uh, too much with some of the post-colonial fallout. And and as governments were stepping in and elevating this threat to a national security level, uh, some of the traditional criminal forums started banning these groups or banning conversations about ransomware. Wow. Now, it's funny. It's kind of uh, they you just change the way you talk about it and, and you say, okay, well, I am offering up a company uh, access, do with it what you will. And we know a lot of times that's for ransomware, uh, but they they really did not want that attention. Uh, they do not want the US government and our national security agencies coming after uh, these criminal groups. So the, the forum stood up to fill that void. And this is actually something that we see quite often. Once there's a takedown or someone's arrested or a ransomware group goes away, that's not the end of the problem. It just pops up somewhere else as someone steps into the void.
1: Wow, moral code, Eric. You got to have a moral code, right? Every organization.
0: I, I suppose at some level. <laughs> I, I would think a you know a, a monastery the the uh, monks would have a a higher level moral code potentially than some of the people that Tom's dealing with. Well, yeah, you got principles.
1: Yeah, principles. you got ransomware gang principles, and you don't want to cross that line, Eric. Yeah. I think, right, Tom?
0: Yeah, early
2: on it was interesting. Back 2016, 2017, even within some of the criminal communities, there was an open debate whether a ransomware is something that should be done. It was kind of looked at as lowbrow. It wasn't technically sophisticated. It wasn't really uh, something that these uh, criminal communities really thought was uh, – interesting or novel when it comes to cyber attacks. And then there was also the moral dimension of should we go after critical infrastructure? What happens if it's a hospital? And that debate is yeah. gone. There's so yeah. much money in this. there, And there are so many people that are have their hands in the proverbial cookie, cookie jar that it's not going away. And any semblance of thinking that there is some uh, line that won't be crossed uh they've all been crossed
0: it's gone I'm, I'm sure the almighty bitcoin took that concept or that that thought right out of everybody's mind there's always somebody willing to grab some money well absolutely. double extortion
1: right what was it the maze ransomware where you know it's not enough to get get it the one pass now we're going to get the two pass
2: why not yeah innovation is really the key uh within these communities and maze was one they as you said they brought this double extortion uh, realizing that, okay, we locked up networks before, but we're not getting paid all the time. If someone has good backups or they just don't want to pay, then they can't get paid from that that victim. Well, they came up with a novel technique to steal data before you lock up the systems. And what we see quite often uh, within this ecosystem, once there is a technique that proves out to be effective with getting paid, It is quickly adopted across all the communities. And I think at, at, uh, last count as of last month, I think there were, uh, between like 35 and 40, uh, different groups, big groups that are actively doing the double extortion and, uh, they they continue to bring innovation into the space. Wow.
0: Okay. So I read the history and evolution of ransomware attacks off your website in preparation, which was phenomenal. And I already gave you the answer, Rachel, but (laughs) I mean, isn't it crazy Ransomware emerged in 1989. Tom, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's a great blog article. We'll credit Veronica Drake for doing it. But how many ransomware groups are out there in Uh, your estimation?
2: Ransomware groups, uh, there's over 150 different variants who are using malware to encrypt systems and, and try to extort victims to get the decryption keys. Uh, the larger groups that are doing the um, advanced kind of scouting and and have uh, uh, customized software and are also doing the double extortion, uh, we we see that there's always there's been about thirty to forty over the past couple of years. Okay, about uh, so what's a been third, a quarter. Yeah, uh, and what's interesting here is the groups that we were talking about earlier, Maze. They're defunct. Uh, the the half-life of these groups is about nine months and that's wow. what's fascinating with this as well
0: but is it like a startup where and eh, maze was a good run for nine months we made a couple million in bitcoin let's uh let's go start maze two, or let's go start something else
2: yeah i think it's uh partly that which is there's so much money uh once you have made all that money Ironically, that notoriety brings in more attention, especially law enforcement. Right. And these groups, uh, while they are able to cash in on their their name and when they victimize someone, when you're going through a negotiation with these groups, sometimes it's helpful to, to know you're dealing with one of the more reputable groups that has always right. followed through with delivering the decryption keys and the decryption keys work. Uh, but that only lasts so long. These groups also know they need to disband because if they're too prominent, then there's too much attention and it's easier to actually uh, break apart the group, reconstitute under a different name. It kind of wipes the slate clean. It complicates law enforcement efforts, complicates attribution. And that's something that uh, I, I think we, have seen quite often that uh, the, the groups for many different reasons will choose to cease operations um, And but the actors behind them, they reconstitute and, and come out as a, a different name.
0: So unlike organized, traditional organized crime where, where it, it's almost like they're in a specific business in a territory and they may change leadership over time, the groups literally disappear and then reconstitute in some other form.
2: Exactly. And we know the underground communities. Uh, This is where they do a lot of the recruiting within the the Eastern European cyber criminal community. We're really probably talking uh, maybe several thousand people at most who are active within this space, Uh, but they're making a lot of money and they have really uh, broken up the entire attack chain where there are certain people that just focus in on gaining access into someone's networks. There's another part of the community that just focuses in on looking for vulnerabilities. There's another- They're specializing. Absolutely. Uh, So as these groups kind of get the band back together, they can put advertisements out, they can solicit for different people to join their groups. If it's uh, highly uh, profitable, the ransomware as a service, Uh, people wanna come bring their talent to these these criminal groups because the money it is so lucrative that uh, being part of one of these ransomware gangs can can bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and, and multiple millions of dollars for some of the individual participants on a yearly basis.
0: So how often will you run across Rachel Lyon, you know, ransomware extraordinaire, you know, incorporated, whatever, like like an individual who dips their toe into the dark net. They start, you know, they they, they pay for a ransomware package and they just go out to make a few bucks. It's hard to tell.
2: Uh, A lot of these communities, they take they take a lot of care to really hide their their true identity. What is interesting is as these groups we saw with the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, one of the more prominent groups called Conti, they turned against themselves uh, because Yeah, and they dumped internal chat logs all over the internet. They dumped details about how the organization was operating. And we're seeing a lot of researchers are actually picking up the pieces there. They're going back through the histories. They're able to identify some of the individuals and they're posting some of the the details of these individuals online. So they, they take a lot of care to keep themselves hidden, but. Again, it's uh, the criminal space. Uh, You can't trust anyone. And there are slip ups that these people make and you can identify the individual sometimes.
0: To summarize, then Rachel Lyon, sole proprietor is probably not the most lucrative way to make money. She should go corporate, but she has to watch her back then, because if the group falls apart, people could out her. And it's high risk, high risk, high reward. Absolutely. And we've seen that. That's actually quite often
2: how it happens. It is someone who's very prominent uh, nowadays. They had to get a start somewhere. And that start might have been four or five, six years ago. And typically what we see happen is they had a a slip up. They revealed their personal email address. Mm. They revealed an account where you can get an associated phone number Once you get that, now you can start tying it back to people's real world identities. And that's something um, that the the criminals, because they also have their reputations, like they're actually tied to their criminal identity as well. So there are links and there are ways in which you can can contract this. And the nice part is and what I love about law enforcement. they're on this case and they're looking at activities that happened 10 years ago and they're just waiting for some of these individuals to get to a place where they can uh, nab them, extradite them. So um, I'm High, highly yeah, confident yeah. We're, we will continue to see people um, maybe when they're out of the ransomware gangs and they, they've gone legitimate and they're in their 40s or 50s, maybe they'll get scooped up finally and have to, to pay for their crimes.
1: I don't know. It sounds like these ransomware gangs have like HR departments, maybe a pension. I mean, I guess, would you have to go legit? It sounds like you could almost retire <laughs> from
0: them. In Tahiti. Yeah. In
2: Tahiti, yeah. that's right. <laughs> That's what I sometimes wonder as well. Like, how much is enough? Because some yeah. of these groups. Oh, the mean,
0: age-old question.
2: Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, it's pride. They're, they don't go away. Uh, or maybe some of them have gone away and, and we never hear from them again. Uh, it's just, yeah, sometimes I look at some of these groups. Uh, Conti was, I think, um, when the details of their wallet was revealed, it, it was over a billion dollars, if I recall correctly. Um, now, again, some of that is the fluctuation in, in Bitcoin, and it's not sure. quite as much today as it, it was nine months ago. Uh, but it was an immense amount of money.
1: It's crazy that they're making. It's not slowing down. And In fact, it's you know seems to be uh, escalating, accelerating. Um, and, and we were talking a little bit earlier too about the sanctions. You know, the uh, the Treasury Department has these sanctions, and if you're if you're a company, and you know you can't pay ransomware to, I guess, someone who's on the a group that's on the sanction list, and uh, and that's a real bummer. Uh, I think that's a benefit. It's not slowing anything down. And I mean, personally, Tom, like if I have a company and I'd be like, I'm going to pay it on the side. I'll give you a little cash under the table to get my stuff back because I don't want all my business out out in the world. But yeah. um, what are you seeing? <laughs>
2: I, I feel so bad for the small and medium sized businesses who through no fault of their own, they fall victim, and their entire existence as a company is put in jeopardy overnight. And it's not just the company, exactly. it's, it's all their employees and all these people who are dependent upon the, the business for their livelihoods. And that's when it becomes very real because that is what the, the business owners and the executives are going through it is an existential crisis for them. Yeah. This is not that they want to pay these groups to get their their companies back up and operational. It is I, That's an aspect to it, but many of these victims, they're looking at their employees and they're saying, my God, like we're not going to be able to function if we can't recover these networks, if we can't get right. our plans back, if we can't recover uh, the, the manufacturing systems that have been locked up. And that, unfortunately, is what what happens quite often, and the reality of what a lot of these people are going through. And when we step in to uh, talk through how this process operates, and we we're just talking the business aspects right. of how this operates. Uh, and when we step in and we explain to a victim kind of how this process plays out, and there's a normal timeline, there's typical steps that happen in any negotiation. And when you get to the point where you're contemplating a potential payment, and you introduce, as you said, the, the sanctions list that the Treasury Department maintains. Most businesses are like, What is that? And when you walk them through and explain that there are certain individuals in, in certain countries like Iran, North Korea, where the US government has said you may not do business at all uh, unless you have a specific waiver. And when you step into this, we need to also look for these ransomware gangs. Are they on this list? Because the potential penalties associated with an inadvertent payment or any payment to these groups uh, could result in severe penalties that right. the Treasury can levy across everyone involved in that process. Uh, and we've been involved in some uh, engagements where there's been a, a connection to a, a potential sanctioned group or a sanctioned entity. And we had to explain to the company and even they eventually said, we're not going to pay because of the liabilities associated with a potential inadvertent payment. And you just really feel bad. You well, you can pay, uh, but it exactly you can also go in and there is a process to request a waiver from Treasury uh, to make a payment. But that
1: takes like a year or so. Right. Yeah. Something like that, I'm sure. (laughs) And,
2: And we've had some where some organizations have tried that, but. Three four months later, they were like, "It's too late." At that point, the right. the the
0: need to get those
2: systems back. Yep.
0: Right. I, I'm going to argue the other point. I think if you take the incentive away, if you cannot pay the legally pay the ransomware gangs, at some point they're going to retarget or relocate, or you know maybe they target Eastern Europe or, or Europe instead yeah. of the U.S. But I think there's a benefit by taking away that incentive to them. Right, that payment stream, that's important. Whether payments are exacerbating the problem?
1: Yes.
2: Yes. I, I think that is, as you read the official line of the U.S. government, is they do not encourage ransomware payments because it encourages more of these groups to um, make more victims and, and get into the trade, and we have absolutely seen that. The high-profile nature of these attacks, and you see it in the news, and when people hear that the ransomware payments are netting uh, millions of dollars, it's making the problem worse. Uh, but the, the challenge here is you have businesses who, as, as we said, like they will cease to function if they can't recover. And that's one where the, the government doesn't want to make a, a, vic, a victim uh, twice over right. by preventing them from being able to make a business decision to recover their networks.
0: Yeah, I, I equate that to the U.S.'s policy on paying for hostages, right? And and, and I, I believe the theory is that since we don't pay for hostages, fewer people take U.S. citizens hostage because we don't legally pay, right? We, we tend to uh, uh, avoid that as a nation. Now, I know there are private payments made and everything else. Um, and, and the nice thing is we have the military to go help us out sometimes.
2: Yeah, Um payments are making this problem worse it, there is no doubt about it the amount of the amount of money that is being funneled over into these Eastern European gangs it is a, it is attracting more talent it is enabling them to uh, innovate it is enabling them to uh, really reinvest in their their capabilities which is making it even a bigger threat because now they're even more capable than they were a couple of years ago mm-hmm. uh, and it is why the U.S. government says they do not encourage ransomware payments for that exact reason, because it does make the problem worse. And then there is the uh, other reality, which is this is a business decision right. that the U.S. government, uh, in some ways, they, they can't help uh, prevent th- these things. They can't help uh, make a private sector organization, their, their network security, perfect. And when they do fall victim... It's a business decision, ultimately, right. of whether they're going to pay or not.
0: And I think making it more difficult to pay probably drives some incentive for the adversary to go elsewhere where it's easier. Yeah, I I, I know think, it's tough. I know it's tough on the on the uh, you know the attacked, if you will.
2: I, I think the government is also doing the right thing over the past couple of years. They have taken a lot of steps to at least get the reporting of what is happening. Flowing back in so they can even understand the problem. I think four or five years ago, it was unclear who to report to. Right. It was unclear uh, whether it was something you had to report. Uh, do you go through law enforcement? Do you file SAR reports? Uh, if it's under outside counsel and it's under privilege, like, and I think the government has taken a lot of steps to make it clear that they are not going to penalize people for coming forward for being a victim. They are there to help. Uh, we always encourage uh, victims who we're working with to to engage the FBI, because they have been a wonderful resource uh, as victims are, are going through this event to really understand uh, what the government knows, different, uh, what they're seeing across the different ecosystem uh, and and the government, I think, has done a fantastic job of getting a better handle on at least what's going on. So hopefully, there will be um, more policy decisions in the future that could get us to where you're talking about, where maybe there is a future where uh, ransomware payments are are not going to be needed.
1: That would be awesome. Although I I, I think about kind of the the U.S. way of life, you know, in business and the almighty dollar, and you know, it's the the desperation of one's business, you know, and I mean, would they know that you've been a victim of ransomware if you didn't tell anybody? I mean, could you kind of keep it on the DL and just slide a few bones over to get your, your stuff back? Or, I mean, are there ways to track that? Uh,
2: yeah. I, know. I, I think that's always the, the big question, whether, and we've seen some uh, smaller businesses where they get the ransomware note and they don't have the resources to uh, engage Uh, incident response firms who do understand the reporting requirements uh, or they don't have a cyber insurance uh, plan where they're doing it themselves. And yeah, I think in those situations there's probably uh, the reporting could be improved. Yeah. However, for the firms who do have cyber insurance and they uh, contact their carrier to understand if the specific incident they're going through is covered, you'll see that there is actually a very robust process where Mm. there are Uh, there are law firms engaged, there are incident response firms engaged, there are negotiators engaged. And at that point I'm highly confident that there is plenty of reporting Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of people that really understand uh, really the laws that that govern data breaches, that govern cybersecurity incidents. Mm-hmm. And that is where you see a lot of, a lot of the uh, reporting come from. So that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's it's perfect, but I think the, the last couple of years the government has made it much more clear about where and what to report and how to engage. And then all of the uh the firms who are engaged in the incident response, they're also aware of their obligations as well to report. So I do think that there is better transparency about what's happening in this space.
1: Yeah, it's it's come a long way from from where it used to be. Uh, I just I always kind of uh, liken it to um, like car insurance, you know, (laughs) like, uh, I don't. I won't say how I did it, but the bumper on my car came off because I parked weird. Anyway, but I I chose to pay cash for it rather than go through insurance, you know. <laughs> and and that's kind of how I think about these ransomware, you know, kind of kind of incidents. It's a you know it's a calculation, I guess. You know what what are you willing to pay out of pocket versus, you know, kind of lean into the insurance and then have it go on the record. But I, I'm not encouraging ill-awfulness or you know <laughs> anything like that.
2: What well, well <laughs> even there are many companies like when they first encounter, even if, it, let's say, it's a $25,000 ransom, well, have you ever acquired cryptocurrency before? Yeah. Do you have an account of where to get cryptocurrency? Well, you're going to have to open that up. And yeah. that uh, exchange, if it's a reputable one, is going to have their own reporting requirements. True. Uh, yeah. we, we've seen some people try to go that route. And then, as they try to fund it, well, it immediately flags different anti-money laundering features, so their accounts were locked up, and they're like, oh, "I was just trying to make a ransomware payment, and everything, <laughs> all my accounts were locked up." I was like, "Yeah, yeah," because uh, th- there's protections in place for exactly that that reason. Wow!
0: You so think there'd see- be a concierge service that the right. adversary provides? Exactly. Here, we're gonna make this easy for you. Here, are the, here are the major objectives. We're gonna sign. Y- you know, Veronica, to walk you through this. If you have any issues at any time, I want you to reach out via signal to Veronica, and this is what we're going to do.
2: Well, Sadly. you're you're not too far off. You're you're spot on. the The customer support on these ransomware gangs. Is better than than most businesses. I mean, that's not a high bar, but keep going. Oh, they are there to to help you along. Uh, They will answer questions. They will give you uh, proof that they can decrypt uh, your network. They are there to explain uh, where to get cryptocurrencies. So. They want to make it, as you said, as easy as possible for them to get paid. So they actually have help desks, and we know that they, they run these, and, and uh, they even hire their own uh, negotiators. And wow. sometimes we're, we're dealing with the same ransomware group, and one week they're very nice, and they're accommodating, and they're back and forth, and the next week they're confrontational and they're, they're telling you go pack sand there. You can't get any discounts and uh, you, you realize you're dealing with different parts of their customer success uh, organization.
1: Nice. Customer success. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> nice. So when you're working with customers, your customers, I know one of the things you do is you conduct tabletop exercises to practice. Yes. Do you, do you as part of that service I'm assuming what you'll do is inform them of the landscape. Hey, this is what we're seeing. These are the typical techniques and tactics and procedures that ransomware groups are working right now. And and then uh, to me the tabletop exercise that you discuss is is really a a drill if you will. We're going to go through a simulated ransomware attack and see how you operate and then we'll critique it and help you understand what you can do now in preparation for a ransomware attack. Is that close? Yeah, you're, you're really close.
2: And I think the traditional uh, training evolutions that, that many organizations have done really focused in on, as you said, the TTPs, how the malware works, how do I keep it off my network? Uh, how does it propagate? How do they get in? But it was very much focused in on the cyber defense standpoint of how do we prevent this from happening to my network, where a lot of our tabletops have moved over the, the past three years. It's now at the board level uh, because the board and the C-suite, they are asking questions of, OK, not only are we prepared, how are we prepared to defend against a, an attack? What happens if we become a victim and we walk the C-suite and the, the board of directors through how other organizations of similar sizes uh, who have also had very good uh, defensive postures, who have become victims, how they responded and walk them through the decision making process. And and quite often that they, they ask the the same questions of how does this ecosystem operate? Why is this even allowed to to happen? Uh what is Bitcoin? Uh, and after we get through all of that and explain how the entire system operates, then we walk through, okay, you're a victim. Who's going to make the decision to pay or not? And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, I always thought that was going to be our CISO or someone in the technology department. It's like, no. This yeah, it's is no- the CISO.
0: I'll give them a billion dollars of Bitcoin. No problem.
2: Yeah, and now it's no. It's the COOs and CEOs making these calls. We've seen... Uh, businesses for many different reasons uh, make decisions to pay that are beyond just the decryption key. Sometimes it's medical information and they don't want that spilled all over the internet. So now it's the data where they don't want to make the payment, but they also don't want uh, all of their their customers and all their health records spilled online. And me personally, if one of my uh, when one of my doctors was impacted. I wouldn't my, want my medical information all over the globe. I still know it's stolen, I still expect to be notified, but there are these types of situations where there are other decisions uh, at, at play and we walk the, uh, the decision makers through how other people have done it. And the, the different curveballs that always come in and it really has helped them better understand how they would respond and, and who would be making decisions and how communication is going to flow and who's going to be uh, controlling the, the the media inquiries and how you're going to notify the relevant regulators. Uh, so it has really been eye opening in many different ways because this is something that, as you said, like this should not Happen. This environment shouldn't be allowed to exist, but it does, and many businesses are now thinking through exactly how they would uh, respond in in a similar situation.
0: I'm going on record here as saying, to me, this is probably one of the most important things a business or organization can do in preparing their their cyber defensiveness. Right? I mean, because it's it's easy to go back to the board or to the, to the C-level and say, we need to buy firewalls, or we need to buy, who, who cares what the technology is, right? But you miss the why many times. And even when you explain it, you, you have somebody on your board of directors who's never dealt with cybersecurity. They don't fully understand. You put them in that, in that role play effectively, that tabletop exercise, that walkthrough, whatever you want to call it, Tom. And I really think it becomes real for them. I think it becomes more personal wait a minute, I'm involved in this decision as a member of the board or as the CEO, I'm involved? What do I do about it, right? How do I prevent this from ever happening? What do I need to do? Well, let's sit down and talk through that then. And Rachel, we had a session on cyber ranges a couple months ago, but being able to go through and actually war game and, and imprint on somebody's mind something that they just weren't aware of, what's the likelihood of cyber activity? I don't know. Pretty low until we get hit that it's really high. I I think that's an amazing activity. Yeah. No question statement there. Check me in 10 years and I may be uh I, I may be totally off base. I I
2: think you're spot on. The the questions that come from the boards after they go through this tabletop are a complete 180 from where they started. And it is very very real, and what's also interesting, then they say, okay, well, how well is my organization protected? And they have invested in all those firewalls and and the controls that you spoke about. They say, so, well, what else could impact us? And then you say, well all of our critical third-party vendors who have privileged access into our networks. And it's like, wait, what are we going to do about that? How <laughs> are we going to monitor uh, their health? And that's where this now becomes like e- even bigger problem. And they, they realize that, um, that this is something that is, is going to be, uh, uh, something we're all dealing with for a long time. And it is something that there is no silver bullet solution it is, as you said, it's the layered defenses, it's doing the, the basics, it is making sure that you have a plan in place, right. uh, and it's making sure that you continue to, to track what's happening in the uh, larger ecosystem because the threats just continue to change, they uh, change tactics. They look. Once you
0: shore up one area of your network, they're looking for the other one that, that you weren't yeah. even thinking about. But you're educating the decision makers on the art of the possible. You're giving them the ability to ask open-ended questions instead yes. of binary questions, right? Should we Should we upgrade our firewall infrastructure? I mean, if if, if you're at the C level, it's like, uh, I don't know, I, I need to use this money for... Inventory right. acid management tool or right. something. Which one's more important? Well, that's more targeted to the business. I don't think you have that understanding of why. And right. you can open, you can ask those open-ended questions. To me, it's a, it, it's a great and highly needed exercise that I'm betting most companies never do.
2: More and more are, which is yeah. the silver lining. That's and good. I think the other part of it is especially for many of the larger organizations, uh, they, they have this impression that they spend enough, they're, they're secure. And then when we yeah. walk them through that one of their peers in, in their industry who had the same level of investment in the same defenses was impacted, they're like, oh, my gosh, like now, <laughs> now I need to better understand uh, what, what else we need to plan
0: for. So let's hit the tabletop and take you've now been impacted. Your operations are down. Your data is encrypted. You need $5 million to get out. Your employees can't work. They're calling. I mean, you you start going through that exercise. I think it becomes real. We we did an exercise at Cypher Brief, a conference I went to last October. I think it was last October. I think I talked about it on the show, Rachel. But it was at the national level where we had the president and the secretary of defense simulated, of course. And we had industry and we had the intelligence agencies and and DHS and everyone. Um, And I really think that exercise opened people's minds. People are Mm -hmm. very powerful, making decisions every day about the inner workings of the government, just the government in that case, when commercial industry was getting hit by a ransomware attack, A, a, a scaled out, you know, large ransomware attack, not just one organization. It opened everybody's eyes about just how do we communicate? What are the lines of communication? The roles and responsibilities? And I think you need that within a company. But mm. I've beaten this one down. Um, you know, we need more of it. Rachel, any last questions as we as we come to the end of our time?
1: Ah, oh, that's a hard one. Okay, so given all of this, Tom, you know, kind of what what do you see in the next few years? I mean, are we ever I don't think we're going to get ahead of it. I think we can we can all say that. But I mean, are we going to get closer to kind of like, um, I don't know, can we troll back or, you know, how, there's got to be some recourse we have to gain some kind of foothold versus just these really strong defenses. I mean, they're trolling us. Can we troll them? Can we can we sow you know, kind of uh, indecision or I don't know, some kind of um, fear? I don't know. But like what what can we do as like organizations like, you know, Joe, Joe Public, what, what, what can we do to kind of help get ahead or you know get on even footing?
2: Yeah, um, great question. This is one where, where I think from the government perspective, I get the impression there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Uh, since this was elevated to the, the national security level, we have seen a lot of groups uh, be taken down. Their yeah. infrastructure has been taken offline. Uh, you have seen sanctions against different uh, crypto exchanges and different um, the different mixing mechanisms that have been used by these criminal groups. Uh, we have seen that, uh, as you said, the infighting. We've seen that details yeah. about the inner workings of these groups all of a sudden are online. And I just have a suspicion, like, there are many people who are actively trying to disrupt uh, these groups' ability to coordinate, to have that safe haven, uh, while... We, we might be doing this all in cyberspace. There are still ways in which I think there is having an impact with, with at least sowing some discord within these communities. Uh, and I I hope that continues, uh, because that, that just makes it a little bit harder for these groups to continue to, to operate with reckless abandon, uh, from the victim standpoint or or the organizations trying to protect themselves. It is so cliche. It is. It's the cyber <laughs> hygiene. It's the the two-factor authentication, multi-factor right. authentication. And I say that for your personal accounts as well. Right. I even tell my family members, your Gmail oh, account, God. just enable the multi-factor authentication. And yes. it is going to prevent 95% of the bad things from happening to your account. Right. And uh, if people could just do that simple thing, uh, we'll be in a much better spot. And I, I think organizations, same thing. It's making sure that they understand where can people access your your network and make sure that you at least have strong passwords, you rotate those, you, you have additional protections in place to just monitor because that's where a lot of these threats continue to, to get that easy foothold.
0: Is it safe that's to right. say that by making yourself a more difficult target, the adversary will just go to the easier targets and you're probably safer?
2: Uh, you're probably safer. Absolutely. Like if,
0: if you're patched, if you're using multi-factor authentication, you're a, a more hardened target So the likelihood is unless somebody is absolutely targeting you personally or your business, they're just going to move on to easier, more open targets. Yeah. And most of these attacks we've seen are opportunistic.
2: It's exactly what you said. They're using tools that are scanning the internet for some unpatched system for something where they have an active exploit for, and then they start their operations from there. So yes, if you make yourself a harder target, Uh, They are not going to persist and come at you over and over again. They're just going to move on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. And and that's not super costly, both in dollars and or time. I mean, I know multi-factor authentication is is a pain in the you know what, but it's not horrible. Rachel, are are we using it at this point? (laughs) We had a debate, Tom, a couple months ago with Rachel. It was multi-factor authentication was, um, what would we say, Rachel, a bridge too far?
1: Ah, oh, such a hassle, but it's smart. It's good. I know it's good. And, you know, I mean, I, are I. Are we can-
0: using it, Rachel? The question on the table is, are we using it on the important I- accounts?
1: I am. I am. It's just, you know, like I have two phones and sometime I got to authenticate on the other phone. I don't have the phone with me. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I wish it was easier, but I guess that's the point. It's not supposed to be.
2: <laughs> I, I will tell you one of the things. Uh, so Flashpoint has processed all of the exposed uh, username and passwords that we've ever observed. And we are able to look up someone's email address and even for me like i'll pull up my email address and you see all your passwords and you're just like oh my gosh and that really drives it home and it's like 40 billion credentials and when you see the malware what it's stealing off your computer nowadays to include like all the cookies and now in your download folders it's pulling off all those files as well wow and when you look at this you're like okay i'll I'll, I'll put on the multi-factor authentication
0: (laughs) Tom, anything we, any chance we could get as a benefit of the podcast here, just a quick, quick view into Rachel's (laughs) life and send it over to her. I don't need to see it, but maybe if she saw it, like the tabletop exercise, it would become more real, more tangible.
1: Some things you can't unsee, Eric. I don't know. I don't know. I I get the alerts, I get the alerts, you showed up on the dark web or whatever sometimes. I don't know what it means, but I just figured it's probably already out there. I can't even remember my passwords though, so I don't understand how other people can get them if I don't even know what my passwords are. Do you
0: use a password manager?
1: I do not, no, I just make up random passwords. (laughs) So Tom, test me here,
0: test me. Password manager, good, bad. Uh, Indispensable, need to have it. Exactly. Exactly. Encrypting your data, it's probably not a bad thing, right? Yeah, always a good thing. Okay. Um, multi-factor <laughs> authentication, we've already talked about, and then patching. If you can it do is- those four things, Rachel, you're probably better off. Well, you're definitely better off.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But it's just inconvenient. I mean, that's all I'm saying. You know, it's, it is, I- but
0: the same thing applies to, <sighs> to governments, to businesses, yeah. everybody it's the basics that will prevent the bulk of the issues
1: it is it is you're right and you got to stop thinking that why would they want me i don't have anything of interest but i guess i'm a gateway to you eric or tom you know so it's i got to do it for the greater good i think is what you're saying we have to think that way right <laughs>
0: Just protect yourself. Tom, I wanted to talk attribution. It's one of my favorite topics. I know we don't have enough time for it, but it's been great having you on the show. Yeah. Hopefully Rachel will take a little bit of this. Hopefully our <laughs> listeners will take a little bit of this. Ransomware, if you if you just look at the history of ransomware, it's growing. I mean it's and we know that from the
1: day. Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, mean it's it it's
0: not going anywhere anytime, anytime soon. So we have to do a better job of dealing with it.
1: Yeah, I would love Tom to come back. We could talk about attribution. We could talk more about surfing the dark web. Because why isn't there a browser? Like, I just want to Google for the dark web so I can just go see, you know, like, I don't know, what if I want to buy a puppy or something? Maybe someone's got a good, you know, rescue dog that's that's on the dark web that I can't yeah. find elsewhere.
2: There's a lot of legitimate reasons uh, that people want to anonymize their, their browsing. And I think it's going to be something that is going to become easier and easier uh, in the future. And as. I think more people become privacy aware and they don't exactly. want to be served up advertisements for, yes. they like, how did someone know I was searching
0: for yes. drapes or, or I needed to replace the... So creepy. A- and Tom, there aren't a lot of legal puppy sales on the dark web though, are there? <laughs> uh, I, there's
2: more and more... Things that are legitimate. Um, so Okay, it, that's part two.
0: It's part two. Uh, th- there are good reasons. And, Next and, time uh, you're on, we want to hear, you know, <laughs> what did you find on puppy legal puppy sales? Not illegal. Legal puppy sales on the dark web. Rachel, I, you're probably okay on the old uh, World Wide Web there, the dub, dub, dub.
1: You know, but I, I think to Tom's point, you know, maybe I don't want people seeing how, how much I search for, you know, puppies to adopt. I mean, maybe they'll think I, you know, I got a thing. But, uh, you know, I just there's something to be said for privacy, to your point. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm all about that. I, I haven't really figured out the VPN at home thing. Like that's on my to do list to learn. So, you know, it's I think everybody's I think over time we're all going to have to get so much more savvy for sure. So much more savvy in, in the world that's to come. But that's a conversation for another time with Tom. So I hope you come back and join It'll us. Be a good that one. Would be amazing. It'll be a great yeah. one.
0: I would love it, Tom. Thank you for joining us today for our listeners out there. I'll I'll take this one, Rachel. See how I do (laughs) hit the subscribe button. Give us feedback. Give us content, you know, commentary back on how, you know, what you love, what you don't love about the show. We're here for you. So we want to hear from you. Yes. Tom Hoffman, Flashpoint, thank you so much for your time today. Rachel, good luck with the uh, dark web puppies. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe spend a little more on multi-factor authentication.
1: Maybe, maybe. Maybe before I get on the old tour again, I'll do that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, everyone. Take care and have a great week. We'll catch you next Tuesday. Same time, same channel. That's right. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.